take up our study today. I had begun a lecture and cut it off short last week, simply try to finish the remainder of that lecture. We are presently considering that kingdom of our God and its continuity through the Old Testament. And we are specifically looking at these lectures, these present lectures, taking up that thousand-year period <clears throat> between Abraham and the Babylonian exile. I left off with covering, we covered Abraham and the patriarchs, and we covered Moses and the Exodus, and we take up with that Sinai covenant, Goldsworthy refers to it as that Sinai covenant on page 73 of our book that we are using to guide our thoughts. <clears throat> and uh, that Sinai covenant, of course, he says the escaped Israelites came to Sinai where the next great aspect of Moses' ministry was to take place. The giving of the law. And then Goldsworthy says that so much confusion has arisen at this point that we must endeavor to understand clearly the purpose of the law. Part of this confusion occurs because of a misunderstanding of the attitude to the law in the New Testament. I think I've read this or some of this to you before, but I do want to cover it again. Part of the confusion, he says, comes from a misunderstanding of the attitude to the law in the New Testament. Because Paul says of Christians in Romans 6.14, you are not under the law but under grace. And because he stresses that justification means a righteousness which is, quote, apart from law, Romans 3.21, it's too easily assumed that the law is not only bypassed in the gospel, but even overthrown. It is not unfair, I think, to say that many Christians have an understanding something like this, that God gave the law, Israel the law at Sinai, as a program of works whose goal is salvation, which of course we know that's where the misunderstanding is. That was never intended. The history of Israel shows how complete was the inability of Israel to achieve that required standard so God, therefore, in a kind of desperation, scrapped the plan, scrapped plan A, instituted an emergency plan B, which is the gospel. The Old Testament thus becomes essentially the record of a failure of plan A. Its relationship to the New Testament is almost totally negative. On the next page at the bottom, he says the only reasonable assessment of the Sinai law in this context is that it is part of the program of grace whereby God works to fulfill his promises to Abraham. This is not a plan A that's been jettisoned for a plan B. Not at all. Not at all. The heart of the law 
verse page 75, the heart of the law is the Ten Commandments, which are prefaced by the significant phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. These words should govern our understanding of the Sinai law. We see that God declares that he is the God of his people, that he has already saved them. What follows then cannot be a program aimed to achieve salvation, but rather it is the law of God and it has been received by grace. And uh, there's an interesting and valuable footnote on page 75. I'll not cover it, uh, but it is of significant interest, and I would encourage you to look at it and to contemplate it. There is, of course, uh, then on 76, he says, given this understanding of the covenant, or sorry, the Sinai covenant, this understanding of the Sinai covenant, the moral prescriptions are easy enough to understand. Now, he says a group of apparently meaningless, down at the bottom of that page, he says a group of apparently meaningless food laws become meaningful in the context of the Sinai law. These, all these laws that were laid out in, in, uh, specifics in food laws, even food laws would be absolutely meaningless unless you have this understanding of what the Sinai covenant was and what the meaning of the law was, was for. The footnote there says, footnote number 9 on page 76, I cannot accept the view that the rationale behind food laws, which is clean for eating, and what is clean for eating and what is unclean and therefore forbidden, lies only in consideration of hygiene. Even if some aspects of hygiene may be detected, these cannot be the main purpose. The passing away of the food laws, Colossians 2.16, results from the coming of Christ, not from the invention of the refrigerator. I was actually taught in one Christian school, I was actually taught that the reason God gave Israel these food laws was because they didn't have the science to understand contaminations of foods and God was protecting them. Now that very well may be part of it. Certainly I don't deny. Those food laws certainly were healthful. But that, as I agree with him, I cannot accept the view <laughs> that the only purpose for these things was was that. No, no. They had a meaning. They were typological. They were significant in the history of Israel, contributing to and filling out our understanding of the kingdom of God. Now, as well as that, the food laws on page 7070 takes up the building of the tabernacle. He said the details for the building of the tabernacle must be looked at in the light of the overall purposes of the tabernacle and not be interpreted for their own sake. 
Again, the tabernacle uh, has all these things in it that have to do with uh, types and symbols. And that, that paragraph is worthy. Listen, he says, A secondary aspect of all the detail is that it expresses clearly the fact that Israel cannot be left to design things without God's revelation. I thought that was a profound statement. What we might call the symbolic aids to worship must conform to a given pattern. Otherwise, the heart of man will create something else which reflects not the character of God, but only the evil inclination of the man's heart. For there is very reason, for this very reason, Israel is forbidden all forms of visual aids to worship and of pictures or images of God. Man is incapable of portraying God without falling into idolatry. Now that is a singular statement. That is a singularly true statement and a singularly valuable statement. Man is incapable of portraying God that is left to himself without falling into idolatry. And that, by the way, is the reason we don't use Bibles with pictures of Jesus. We don't use pictures in the meeting place, whatever facility we have for meeting. We don't use pictures of deity, of any of the deity in library, in, in uh, books, literary books, textbooks, no books whatsoever. The scripture clearly forbids the making of any image of God whatsoever because he knows that we are incapable <laughs> of making any image of him without falling into idolatry, such as the fallenness of our hearts. So what is the purpose of all these things? They are symbols. They are symbolic. They are intended to be typological. They are types for our understanding, further opening up our understanding of his kingdom. To that end, I had come across, as I, we got to this particular lesson, I had just found, uh, come across this book, uh, and my wife found it for me uh, by... I, I believe we agreed that it's pronounced McEwen, but it's spelled M and then the uh, hyphen uh, E-W-E-N, McEwen, Scottish one. A book entitled Grace and Truth or The Glory and Fullness of the Redeemer displayed in an attempt to illustrate and enforce the most Remarkable types, figures, and allegories of the Old Testament. Very short title, right? Short, simple title. Uh, but Grace and Truth is the overall title. And in this, he has, you could actually read this book as a 
devotional age. You can read it devotionally. They're very short, very short little chapters. Each chapter, he takes up different types of the Old Testament. I think this was actually originally done in 1840. It has an, uh, an introductory essay. I don't think we didn't find it as a reprint, did we, anywhere? I don't think it's available as a reprint. But obviously the old originals can be found. Uh, and she found this one for me. And I read the whole thing. Uh, I mean, he looks at, every, he takes up individually every everything, types of, of uh, the, actually he has categories. He has uh, types, persons who were types in the Old Testament. And then things that were types, places that were types, various, all the different typologies of the Old Testament. And each chapter is just a brief declaration. For example, the pillar and the cloud of fire. Uh, what was that typ typical of? What did it, what did the typology intend to reveal? And of course, his, his consistent, uh, treatment is that it all revealed Christ. It revealed Christ. All these places, all these names, all these symbols, all this furniture in this tabernacle, every aspect of the tabernacle, the way it was built, the construction of it, the plan, everything, everything. And then, of course, he has people. He talks about Noah as a type, uh, Adam as a type, David as a type, Joseph as a type. You got all these people. You got all these things. You got all these events. You got places. All these things are types. And McEwen uh, did a wonderful, wonderful job in treating in a very brief compass each one. And uh, he really brought out some aspects of typology that I had never even entertained the thought. I'd never thought of it, never heard it, never entertained it. Uh, he has quite a thorough and amazing treatment of all the typologies. But it's called, but the, the main title is Grace and Truth. Uh, that's a wonderful little book. Let me encourage you to try to find yourself one. And you can read it devotionally, as I say, each chapter, each type, treatment of each type is very brief and goes straight to the heart of the matter in showing how that it shows Christ. And uh, so that's uh, in a more academic and restricted way, that's what Goldsworthy is showing us here. That the law, all of its details, all of the, the uh, I didn't read over page 78, there is the entry and settlement into uh, the, uh, the promised land the entry and settlement into the promised land, all of that is typological. And and all of it, the purpose of all of it is to point us with further expanding illumination to Christ and to the development of his kingdom in this world. And remember, remember always, you know, uh, if you have, if you don't have this covenantal view of the scriptures, then you've got to wonder what happened to the kingdom of God 
when Christ was nailed to the cross. But he had told them already, had he not? I mean, he was, he was, uh, interrogated and said, uh, they say you're the king of the Jews. What do you say? What did he say? My kingdom is not of this world. He didn't deny he was the king. He didn't deny he was building a kingdom. He denied that it was of this world. That it was a spiritual kingdom. And that's the same kingdom, my blessed dispensational friends. That's the same kingdom he'd been building since the Garden of Eden. (laughs) He was only and ever building one kingdom. And that's this kingdom, the one that he came to build. So you take up the Mosaic period and the Sinai covenant uh, from page 76 and on forward. You got all the food laws as typology. You got the tabernacle on page 77 as uh, as a further revelation. And then the next thing on the timeline, on the timeline, of course, is Deuteronomy, uh, which is on the top of page uh, 80. He says, uh, uh, nowhere are the law and the gospel more clearly related than they are in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20 through 25. When the child asks, what does the, what does the law mean? What is it all about? The answer is given in terms of the gospel. That is, in terms of what God did in history to save his people. When they said, what do these stones mean? Well, what do these laws mean? Well, they have to do with God's deliverance of his people. In the, then he has a footnote on page 80 I thought was worthy. He said, it cannot be stressed too much that the biblical expression of the gospel is an historical event as God acts on behalf of his people to save them. The gospel is the holy history worked out in the life and death of Christ. The gospel is not man's response to this event, nor is it the work of God in us now as he regenerates and sanctifies the believer. So in the Old Testament, the gospel is the declaring of what God did out there and back there at a fixed place and a fixed time in history. It is objective, not subjective. It is not based on man's reaction to it. It is a redemptive fact that God did a thing and saved his people. And he did save his people. Christ saved his people on the cross. You understand that? We get too used to the modern usage of that word saved. You say, have you been saved? Or when I got saved, got saved. That's a phrase right there. I, that that one has come to my old age to just chap me. I don't even like hear anybody say that. Got saved. It's like you, you know, you got polio or you got a disease. I got a cold. You know, I got saved. No, you were saved in Christ on the cross. And in time, eternity past, in the covenant of God, you were saved. God's people were saved 
in Christ. Quite apart from what they see and experience in time. Now in time of course they will be converted. They will be brought to Christ. But that wasn't what saved them. (laughs) He saved them on the cross. He saved them in his eternal counsels and purposes before the world was created. He saved them in Christ. But in time, they come to repentance. So when the child asks, what is the meaning of all this? He says the answer, even in the Old Testament, the answer was in gospel terms. What does he mean, gospel terms? It was what God did for them. (laughs) That's gospel terms. And then it goes to the book of Joshua, takes up the history narrative from Deuteronomy, as Joshua, the successor of Moses, prepares to lead Israel into the land. So it goes from Deuteronomy to Joshua. And then the next thing on the timeline, of course, is Judges. And, of course, the book of Judges shows Israel's repeated failure. Israel's repeated failure. And God's determined persistence. To maintain his covenant. Boy, if there's one thing you learn studying the book of Judges, it's Israel's repeated failure. And God's persistent determination to his purposes. Certainly the book of Judges teaches us teaches us that. And then, of course, after the book of Judges. You come down, page 83, to the kingship. Saul. From the fragmentation, I love that expression on page 83, middle of the page. From the fragmentation of national life and the localized activity of the judges, there develops a movement towards a more cohesive and structured situation and what is that to be a king kingship and then of course once we get through Saul which was God's answer to their greedy worldly thinking he said you want a king I'll give you a king here's your king he's going to be just like you and God gave him Saul but then from that we move to David And here is a king who is a worthy type of Christ. Page 85, positively then, Saul is one mere link in a chain of historical figures who represent the purpose of God to administer salvation through a human mediator. Saul's significance as the Lord's anointed becomes of prime importance to David so that even when Saul is seeking to kill David, he will not retaliate. However imperfectly he does it, Saul brings a a coherence to rulership in Israel that has not existed since the wilderness days. We should not let the negative elements in Saul detract from the positive significance of his reign. 
It is characteristic of the Old Testament persons and events that despite their imperfections, they foreshadow the perfect which is to come. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10, you're familiar with it. In fact, it must be this. For if the foreshadowings were perfect, they would no longer be mere shadows and would become the solid reality. So all along with the judges before him and the kings after him is part of an historical foundation laid in the Old Testament for the revelation of that perfect human king, Jesus of Nazareth, who mediates God's rule. So all of this he is acknowledging, Goldsworthy is acknowledging, all of this was imperfect, all of this was flawed, all of this failed, yes. But it did not fail of its purpose, which was to point to that perfect fulfillment that would be in Christ. And you cannot view the Old Testament any other way without being faulty. Verse 80, chapter 86, in the middle of the page, David, the anointed one, challenges the enemies of God's people, kills the giant with the same result as the victories of the judges. It is a saving event in which the chosen mediator wins the victory while the ordinary people stand by until they can share in the fruits of their Savior's victory. Little s, of course, you understand. Little s, little Savior's victory. Preparation is thus made for the gospel events in which God's Christ wins the victory over sin and death on behalf of his people. All he's doing is pointing out again all the symbolism that all of this is a symbol. Page 87, in order to maintain the proper perspective on David, we must preserve the framework of the covenant and salvation history. The stability and prosperity achieved by David in finally removing the threat of the Philistines, in, uh, Philistine incursion into the promised land, also in rooting out the last pockets of the Canaanite influence, represent fulfillment of the covenant promises. Now, now some substance is given to that covenant summary. I will be your God and you shall be my people. David instrumentally is used. His reign is summarized in that way. And then, of course, there is that glorious reign, page 88, of Solomon. The bottom of the page, but Solomon must be remembered for more than his temple building activity. In fact, he is an enigma, for he was both the perfecter of Israel's glory and the architect of its destruction. Now that is a mouthful. <laughs> that is absolutely. He says in that statement that the kingdom of God as it was at that time was both built up and destroyed under the same man, Solomon. Top of page 90, we know from the book of Proverbs that wisdom was seen 
as concerned with the complexities of daily life and with the real world of human experience. As such, it would naturally be a concern of all men, Israelite and pagan alike. Perhaps it was this very worldliness, the, the, this very worldliness of the wisdom of Solomon that made it possible for a wise man to move from a wisdom guarded by the framework of the fear of the Lord into a wisdom which spoke of the same things but which forgot the revealed will of God. So Solomon, who beautified Israel with the temple, becomes the apostate from whom the kingdom is removed with a word that recalls the rejection of Saul. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. The story which follows is a long one which leads first to the division of the kingdoms, then the revolt of the northern tribes against Rehoboam, and then the decline of and fall of both the north and the south. That's it. We've traveled all the way from Abraham through to the collapse of the kingdom. A thousand years. And what was my point? What was Goldsworthy's point? Only this. Only this. To show you that all of this was in the singular purpose of God to reveal further and further and further, wider and broader and deeper revelation of the perfect kingdom of God as it is found in Christ. All these elements stack up. To point to Christ. That's why any preacher worth the salt in his biscuit can turn to any of those passages, any of those books, any part of that history and preach Christ. And preach Christ. Because that's what it's all about. <laughs> it's about Christ. It's about his kingdom. It's about the unfolding of his kingdom. And I think Goldsworthy is doing a worthy job of showing us that. And that was, of course, my purpose for this. We'll take up the next time and we'll begin to pick up with the prophets. Now there is fodder abundant for displaying the Christ in the Old Testament. The gospel in the Old Testament. All right. Do we have any questions or discussion or comment from the text today? B.M. Palmer said, and I don't know if I gave you this before. I don't think I did. I meant to. But I wrote the quote in my notes. B.M. Palmer. B.M. Palmer said, Christ is holding in his hand the thread from which all of history is woven. That's a beautiful statement, isn't it? Christ is holding in his hand the thread from which all of history is woven. That's precisely what Goldsworthy is trying to teach in this lecture. All right, let's pray together.